Hi, I'm Barney. Welcome to the podcast. And today, let's read with me. All right. Uh, so this is an article on church government. So it's just a short excerpt of it, and basically going to just talk about three kinds of different forms of uh, church structure or church government. So let, let's just get into it. Uh, it, is, it is debatable whether the New Testament presents us with one final uniform pattern of church government right, to serve as a norm for all ages. So thinking about today, like 2021, how it's going to be looking like. So there is certainly considerable development and modification uh, between Pentecost and the pastoral epistles. So initially, everything was in the hands of the apostles, right, the foundation of the church. So the first division of labor is that is indicated in Acts, Acts chapter six one to six, when the church appointed seven men, later assumed to be deacons, uh, to relieve the apostles of routine and administrative tasks. Uh, later, elders, uh, variously designated like presbyteroi, episcopoi, proistamenoi, and hegumenoi, were appointed. We see that from Acts. We see that from. Timothy, 1st Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, and 1st Peter. So these function alongside with the apostles and prophets and more nebulous functionaries such as evangelists and deaconess. Okay, deaconess, Romans 16, chapter 16, verse 1. So uh, it is perilous to try to work out a consistent polity. Yeah, and so this is, polity is the, the form of the church government. How, how does it, how's the hierarchy and how it looks like today? Uh, on the basis of nomenclature alone. So the terms are too imprecise, too fluid. Uh, for example, a- an apostle could describe himself as an elder in First Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 1, and one of the seven could be called an evangelist in Acts chapter 21, verse 8. So some elders preached, preached but not all did so. Right? In First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, and some... For example, Apollos preached, uh, also preached, but they are not elders at all. Uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 24 to verse 26. So that's why what emerges from the New Testament is not a graduated list of office bearers with precise designations and clearly defined functions, but it is a clear evidence uh, of three forms of ministry. Right? So first is the ministry of tables. That is performed by apostles, deacons, and some women. And then second is a ministry of oversight and pastoral care performed by apostles, elders, bishops, and pastors. And a ministry of the word, which is performed by apostles, prophets, evangelists, elders, and deacons. And by some with no designation at all. So after the apostolic age, so the the apostles definitely has, I mean, they all have passed away and died out. So apostolic ministry has ceased in that way. So the polity developed along these three distinct lines. Uh. So the first is episcopacy, or maybe it's called episcopalian polity. So basically the essential claims is that so by the middle of the second century, the threefold ministry of bishop, presbyter, and deacon was firmly and widely established during the second century. So this appeared in many documents like from St. Ignatius, Pistols of Ignatius, you know, Polycarp, and evidence is also drawn from the tacit assumptions of Christian writers at the close of the 2nd century. 
Yeah, so basically what I was trying to say is that uh, there, there are many evidences in the early documents and early church history that this uh, polity is a common form of the church government. So the next one is that the traces of this threefold ministry are to be found in the New Testament itself. So instances usually cited are James, which is the Lord Jesus' brother, who had a special status in the Church of Jerusalem, and Timothy and Titus, who appear to have had more than presbyterial authority as apostolic delegates. So next, these bishops had authority over the church and presbyters of their areas. So Charles Gore even endorsed the view that presbyters bear the same relation to the bishop as the disciples did to Christ. They are like the circle of 12th round their master, quoted from the church and the ministry. And different views prevail as to the origins and development of episcopacy. So according to Lightfoot, the episcopate was created out of the presbytery. And Hatch uh, also has the same opinion. And the functions of the original plurality of coordinate officers came practically to pass into the hands of a single officer. Uh, but Gore will have none of this. Uh, presbyters never had the powers which belong to bishops. Bishops are the successors of the apostles, not of presbyters. So the only difference is that the authority of bishops is localized, whereas that of the apostles was universal. So Gore even, Gore even claims that the bishops are the successors of Christ himself. Each church with its bishop and presbytery is like a little theocracy in which the bishop represents the authority of God and is a fresh embodiment of that divine presence which was in the world when Christ moved about with his apostle around him. So on this view, the Episcopal bench is a permanent and official apostolate. So opinions also differ as to whether uh, episcopacy of, is of the essence of the church. So Lightfoot saw it very much in terms of expediency. expediency. So did Hatch uh, say that the epis episcopate grew by the force of circumstances in the order of providence to satisfy a felt need. But again, Gore disagreed. Episcopacy is of divine right, he says. It cannot be abandoned and the church churches which possess it cannot be asked to regard it as simply one of many permissible forms of church government. And the principle of the apostolic succession cannot be abandoned without treason to Christ, according to him. And according to those who hold the apostolic succession theory of episcopacy, only bishops have authority to ordain. So consequently, anyone admitted to office in a non-episcopal way does not have a valid ecclesiastical ministry. So this means that the Presbyterians and Congregationalists have violated a fundamental law of the church's life. Uh, they are mere organizations, not churches, according to God. Uh, that's a very interesting statement. So basically what, what he's saying is that uh, any form of polity or church government that is not episcopal uh, is against Christ in a way. Right? That he, it's, it's not uh, it's not a church, right? Because it has uh, violated the fundamental law of what a church is, right? So he is so in his statement, he is very against Presbyterianism or congregation congregationalism, right? So now let's get get to the next one, which is the second form of polity, which is Presbyterianism. So its basic features were laid down by Kelvin, 
and developed in the John Calvin and developed in the seventeenth century Scotland and England, largely by way of polemical interaction with Episcopal Anglican Anglicanism, and they assert, firstly, that in the New Testament the words presbyteros and episcopos are synonymous and designate one and the same office and this is conceded by Lightfoot and even by Gore. So the only difference is that the designation episcopos is used only in Gentile churches. So the early Christian churches did not have to invent a new polity and they found one already ready at hand, ready to hand uh, in the organization of the synagogues. So the, the parallel between church and synagogue was a stock argument with early Presbyterians. Whatsoever kind of office bearers the Jewish church had, such ought the Christian church to have also. But the Jewish church had elders of the people who assisted in their ecclesiastical government and were members of their ecclesiastical consistories. So therefore, such ought the Christian church to have also. And the later researchers of Anglican scholars have served only to give added force to this argument when the majority of the members of a Jewish community were convinced that Jesus was the Christ, uh, which was written by Hatch, uh, they, there was nothing to interrupt the current of their former common life. Of, uh, so basically he's talking about the synagogue. So there was no need for secession or schism for a change in the organization. The old form of worship and the old modes of government could still go on. And next, the alleged traces of episcopacy in the New Testament are extremely nebulous. Uh, James' special position at Jerusalem was probably a reflection of his personal piety, force of character, and close relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, rather than something inherent in his office. So in any case, as Lightfoot points out, he appears in Acts as a member of the presbytery. He might have been chief of the presbyters, but he was not chief over them. So nor does Lightfoot see much support for his own cause in the cases of Timothy and Titus. So it is the conception of a later stage which represents Timothy as bishop of Ephesus and Titus as bishop of Crete. Uh, St. Paul's own language implies that the position they held was temporary. Hence his conclusion. As late therefore as the year 70, no distinct signs of episcopal government have uh, hitherto appeared in Gentile Christendom. So the situation in the sub-apostolic literature uh, is not as clear-cut as Episcopalians claim. In the Didac, for example, uh, Presbyteros and Episcopos are still synonymous. Power, which includes the power to appoint bishops, resides in the congregation, and the basic pattern of ministry is still the twofold one of bishops and deacons. Moreover, the bishop had no uh, diocesan powers. Instead, every congregation, however small, had its own bishop. When the episcopal system had established itself, there was a bishop where, wherever in later times there would have, there would have been a parish church, according to Hatch. And also, the, also the Ignatian epistles confirmed this. Nothing could be done without the bishop, uh, not baptism, not the Eucharist, not a marriage service, not an agape. This surely reflects not a diocesan but a parochial episcopacy. Besides, far from being an autocrat, 
the power of the bishop was severely limited by that of the congregation, which still appointed its own office bearers, exercised their discipline, sent delegates to other churches, and even directed bishops to go on missions. At the period, Ignatius himself being witness, uh, the bishops are still closely related to the presbyters. So as Lin T.M. Lindsay point, points out, in the thought of Ignatius, the ruling body of the church is a court. It's a court in which the bishop sits as chairman surrounded by his council or session of elders, and the one is helpless without the other. For if the bishop is the, the liar, L-I-R-E, the elders are the courts, and both are needed to produce melody. So only in the 3rd century did what had been a relation of primacy becomes, become one of supremacy. So here are the main features of Presby Presbyterianism. It is that the presbyter and bishop are one. Second, all presbyters or bishops are equal in authority. And thirdly, there should be a plurality of presbyters, bishops, pastors in every congregation. So together, they form the local governing body. And traditionally, Presbyterians have tried to maintain the theory of two-fold ministry of elders and deacons. An attempt is made to find a distinctive niche for the preacher by calling him a teaching as distinct from a ruling elder. Uh, but this only leads to artificiality. Uh, for example, a ruling elder uh, who becomes a teaching elder has to undergo a second ordination. In practice, Presbyterianism operates with a threefold ministry of preacher, elder, and deacon. Uh, so it may be difficult to fit this into a New Testament nomenclature, but it harmonizes well with the basic contours of apostolic polity. What matters is not how the church designates its officers, but whether it fulfills the essential ministries of proclamation, pastoral care, and compassion. So elders are not merely representatives of the people, bound to implement their wishes, but they are leaders called upon to rule, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7, to govern, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 28, and to be over over the church in the Lord, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 12. So nevertheless, the people have what Hodge calls a substantive part in the government of the church. Uh, this applies especially in the appointment of the office bearers and the exercise of discipline. Uh, groups of local churches, um, provincial, national, and even international, are to associate in presbyteries and synods, and ideally in ecumenical councils. Uh, the powers of presbyteries and synods are limited by the rights of local congregations. Their function is to exercise a general episcopacy. Uh, example, a example, a ministry of creative oversight and review. Uh, in particularly, they are to remedy local injustices, to ensure the maximum cooperation between local churches, and to encourage the strong to help the weak. So this, the decisions of presbyteries and synods are not merely advisory, but authoritative, as were those of the Council of Jerusalem. So we go to the, the last form of polity, which is uh, independent independency, uh, which is something like congregationalism. And okay, so his best exposition of it is in, according to this article, R. W. Dale's classic, uh, congregational church polity. So an essential independent policy is also set forth by John Owen, uh, in the True Nature of a Gospel Church. And with Presbyterianism, it rejects the diocesan episcopacy, 
but it also denies the legitimacy of presbyteries and synods. So basically, independency has three essential principles. So the word church in the New Testament refers either to the universal church, the invisible church, or the particularly the particular local church. So it is never used for regional or national churches. And there is no other sort of visible church organized but a particular church or congregation where all the members thereof do ordinarily meet together in one place. And the local church is independent of external control and must not be drawn must not be drawn into a larger organization under a central government. Uh, in practice, however, the need of, for some kind of association is in, is inescapable. Uh. So the witness, the various unions, conventions, fellowships. For examples are like Baptists, Congregationalists, and others. And most independent churches have also been Congregationalists. So for example, they are governed by the membership itself. Uh, practically, it's by church meetings. And if all the members of a Christian church are directly responsible, to Christ for the maintenance of his authority in the church, they must elect their own officers, uh, regulate their own worship, and determine what people, what persons shall be received into the fellowship, and what persons shall be excluded from it. So an increasing number of independent churches, however, are not congregational, but are governed by a body of elders. So these elders are elected, chosen by the people, but once they are elected, they function as genuine leaders and overseers. So in the modern ecumenical movement, especially since the Laozan faith and order conference in 1927, uh, various attempts have been made to combine major elements of two or all three of the systems of the church government. Right, so that's the end of the article. Uh, hopefully it does open some insight on what are the different and various, the, the three kinds of church polity and church government. Uh, this definitely has got me thinking what is the best way and how do you incorporate I guess the the, how, the best of all three and uh, at the same time being faithful and not compromising of what the church should be that is ultimately faithful and pleasing to the Lord uh, to, to the Lord himself yes so I'm Barney thanks for listening see you next time Thank you for listening to the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. And if you have any feedback or inquiries, feel free to contact me.